glad for Jesus this morning and for the sacrifice that he made that demonstrates to us the overwhelming generosity of our Father in heaven. For a number of decades, various universities, hospitals, and other charitable organizations had received huge financial gifts from an anonymous donor. Some of those gifts were as much as $30 million to a single uh, cause. The gifts came in the form of cashier's checks so that the recipient would not be able to trace the source. But in 1997, this secret giver was forced to reveal himself when he sold his company and a lawsuit over the sale uh, disclosed his anonymous donations. The man's name was Charles F. Feeney, one of the co-founders of a company called Duty Free Shops. Uh, If you've flown much in or out of airports, you may have seen these. Um, This is a company that sells luxury items and uh, throughout the mid-90s had sales of more than $3 billion annually. An incredibly successful company. According to newspaper writer Judith Miller in the New York Times, over a 15-year period, Feeney's two charitable foundations gave away some $600 million, leaving for himself $5 million. I mean, that's still a lot of money, but when you consider what he gave away... In 1997, the proceeds from the sale of duty-free shops and other business assets that Charles Feeney was involved in, um, the sale, which amounted to around $3.5 billion, most of that also went into Feeney's charitable foundations. And he very reluctantly explained his generosity. He said, I simply decided that I had enough money. And so he gave most of it away. The lawyer who advised him in the setting up of his foundation said this, he does not own a house, he does not even own a car. When he flies, he flies economy, and I think his watch costs about $15. This is a man that could have afforded a collection of Rolex watches and other expensive watches if he wanted to. But the most extraordinary part about Charles Feeney's generosity was that he, all his life, was determined to keep it a secret. In fact, that's the way it remained until because of the lawsuit uh, problem that he had, he was forced to uh, disclose uh, the, the contributions that he had made. Now, that's inspiring to hear about, isn't it? It's nice to hear about people who have money that are generous with their money, freely uh, generous with their money. And it's encouraging to hear that there are people, there have been people like that in the world. But what is not secret to any of us, and I'm afraid sometimes we overlook, is God's overwhelming and abundant generosity to us. 
I've been thinking along these lines as we, I've been encouraged and inspired by the revival movement that's been happening in the hearts and lives of our young people, and thinking about the God who revives and the way that we often pray and seek God for Him to move in our midst in a powerful way, and sometimes it seems to me as if we pray uh, in a way that uh, God is reluctant to give. We almost expect God to be reluctant. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe, maybe none of you know what I'm talking about. You just have great faith and you, you fully expect God to answer prayer. But sometimes the way I feel uh, when I pray and the way uh, I hear other people praying sounds like we don't really expect God to answer prayer. Or if if he is going to answer prayer, we're, uh, we're praying to a God who is reluctant and, and we're prying his fingers open, uh, trying to persuade him to give and to be generous. As I talk to you for a few moments this morning about the God who revives, I want to tell you, first of all, that this is a topical sermon not an expository sermon. Now, some of you, that may not mean anything too, and if that doesn't mean anything, then that's okay. Uh, don't, don't worry about it. Um, but it is, it is a topical sermon. And I want to talk to you for a little bit about the God who revives and His abundant generosity to us. We see it throughout the Scriptures from the very beginning to the end. When Adam and Eve first fell into sin and uh, they realized that they were naked, then they made for themselves aprons of fig leaves. And later on, we see in that story how God himself clothed them. And that became the first sacrifice to atone for sin. And God used the skins of those animals to provide them with adequate clothing. In the very beginning of our Bibles, God is demonstrated to us to be a generous God. We could talk about more examples throughout Scripture, but uh, we won't. Just suffice it to say that this reaches its apex, its culmination, when God comes to us in the form of Jesus himself, born in a manger to live the human experience, to be tempted just like we are, and then ultimately to take upon himself uh, the, the cost, the price for our sins, and then go to the cross. I don't know uh, how many of you are aware that there are differing uh, ideas, theories of the atonement. And, and some people talk about uh, the, what is, in, in theological terms, it's called the penal substitution theory, the fact that, uh, that uh, there's a price to be paid for sin and uh, that Jesus took that price upon himself. Some say, no, that's not right, that Jesus came to demonstrate to us God's love and he came to us to be an example. I... I am one who I happen to believe it's not an either-or. I think that that's a both-and. 
And I believe that in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we see both the reality that he took our sins upon himself. He bore, uh, not that he became sin, who knew no sin, but he took upon himself the price for our sins. And then in doing so, demonstrated to us the overwhelming, abundant love and generosity of God. You see, our God is the kind of God who is not content to leave the dead in the grave. He is not content to leave our world under a curse. But when trust is placed in him, he either brings his people out of death or through and out the other side, proving and demonstrating that death does not have the final say. He is a God who revives. We see this Firstly, in God's unlimited creative potential, God is a, a lavish God, a lavish God. When he created the universe and the stars and the planets, and I, I love the way that the Bible states this when it talks about God's creation It's almost a parenthetical statement that says, and he made the stars also. And we look at uh, the, the pictures, the images that come back to us from things like the Hubble telescope and now the Webb telescope that, that show us just incredible, amazing beauty where nobody can see and enjoy it but God. And yet he created all of this. He didn't create one or two stars. He didn't create just the sun and the moon and the planets. But he created billions and billions, countless numbers of stars and galaxies. Truly, as the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. We look at the earth itself as we read of the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. And uh, it's... uh, it says a whole lot in a short period of, uh, of space and time. Uh, but I was reading about some of this, God's uh, abundance, his lavishness in creation, and uh, read that there are more than 750 species of butterflies and 11,000 species of moths that have been recorded and many more that are yet to be recorded. There are somewhere over 22,000 species of fish and over 150 different varieties of roses. And some might say, well, pastor, don't you know that some of those, uh, some of those species uh, came to be because of a, a process of, of elimination or, or of uh, evolution that God did not create all of that to begin with? Maybe not, but he certainly created the potential for that unlimited, almost seemingly unlimited amount of variety that we see in the world. God is a God of unlimited creative potential. We see it in things like uh, the Venus flytrap, which to me is just fascinating. And I won't take the time to talk to you about it because I want to talk to you about this other animal um, that has a body like an otter It lays eggs like a bird or a reptile. It has a bill and feet like a duck and a tail like a beaver. 
And I, I, I read about all of that, and I see the pictures, and, and I think, who but God would come up with something like that? I, I don't know whether, you know, in my mind, it's, it's difficult. We know God is spirit, and yes, we're created in his image, but yet he is, he is a, a being that's beyond our imagination, and, and sometimes we can't help but ascribe human characteristics to God. And in my mind, I can just imagine God looking around at, at everything that he had made and seeing these various creatures, the beaver and the otter and the duck, and, and, and thinking hmm, I wonder what it would be like to put them all together. And you have the platypus. It's just so amazingly creative. We have the baobab trees. We have all of this. And really, when we think about the seeds of life that all of these plants develop into, a seed is basically a copy of the plant that it comes from. Intrinsically, a seed has all the information it needs to grow into a complete and healthy plant. One uh, incredible example uh, of God's creative power and potential is found in a date palm seed that was found to be about 2,000 years old and somehow preserved, I believe, somewhere in a monastery over in the Middle East and uh, nothing more than being stored or kept in hot, dry conditions. And that 2,000-year-old date palm seed in the not-too-distant past has germinated and begun to grow, making it the oldest seed in the world to begin to grow into a plant. Amazing. Powerful. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, about Abraham and Sarah, who the Bible says when they were as good as dead, God enabled them supernaturally to conceive and have a child of their own. God is so full of creative power and potential that the limitations imposed upon us by our humanity and our bodies and by the, the world, the broken world that we live in, doesn't make any difference to God. If God decides that he wants something to live, it will live. We read again in Ezekiel chapter 37 about uh, the prophet's vision of dry bones. And God takes him to see this valley full of bones, skeletons, and says to him, asks him the question, tell me, can these bones live? The prophet very wisely says, O Lord, thou knowest, you know. Um, I'm not willing to stick my neck out, uh, but God, you know, and as he looked, he began to see the, the tendons and the flesh come upon those bones, and life was breathed into them. Friends, we serve a God of unlimited creative potential, and when he decides that something should live, it will live. Not only is he a God of unlimited creative potential, he is a God who is abounding in steadfast love. 
a God abounding in steadfast love. Probably, I think, one of the most important scriptures in the Old Testament that reveals to us the nature and character of God is Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. Unfortunately, a lot of people have this misconception of the God of the Old Testament being a God who was mean and cruel and unkind and and the God of the New Testament, you know, Jesus is a nice guy and somehow when Jesus came along, he changed God's mind. Uh, Brett and I were talking about this just last night. Um, there's, There's an old saying that would be good for all of us to know. And let me see if I can remember and get it right. The new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. You see, friends, the God of the Old Testament is the same God that's God in the New Testament. And He reveals Himself to us in a variety of aspects. And probably we see that most clearly in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6 when God reveals himself to Moses. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And interestingly enough, I can't pass this by without making this connection. Um, You remember the story of Jonah? When God sent Jonah to preach to the Ninevites and Jonah didn't want to go and he ran the other direction and God persuaded him that he ought to go and so he did after spending three days in the belly of a whale and finally he went and reluctantly, it seems, did what God told him to do. And we don't read the reason why that he ran in chapter 1 of Jonah. And I I remember children's books that I had when I was a kid that said Jonah was afraid because the the Persians, the Ninevites, had a reputation of being fearsome uh, people. And, and, uh, but that's not why. Jonah wasn't afraid to go. In chapter 4, after Jonah preached a terrible sermon... You look at it if you're not familiar with it. He preached a terrible sermon to the poor Ninevites. They, from the king on his throne down to the animals in the pasture, they all repented and sought God for his favor and for his forgiveness. And and God relented of the judgment that he had promised through Jonah to send upon them. And in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah says to God, see, this is why I didn't want to go, because I knew that you were a God abounding in steadfast love. In other words, Jonah is saying, I knew you would find a way to forgive those no good Ninevites. And that's exactly what God did. He is abounding in steadfast love. I think of the story of Hosea and Gomer. Um, Not a, uh, it's probably not, if you read your Bible this morning, probably not where you read from. It's just a a little small book tucked away in the minor prophets in the Old Testament. But Hosea, the story of the prophet Hosea is probably the most important one to teach us about the steadfast love of God. The Hebrew is the word chesed. You, you have to clear your throat when you say it, chesed. And uh, it 
refers to this word. In fact, steadfast love, that is the word chesed. Uh, it is the covenant loyal love of God. And when God wanted to demonstrate to his people, and this is what's significant about this, is that it took place in the northern kingdom. That is, you know, after, after Solomon died and his son Rehoboam became king and the kingdom was divided and there were ten kingdoms that went to the north and Jeroboam became king and, and there was left a, a remnant, just, just the, the, uh, the city of Jerusalem and uh, uh, two tribes to the family of David. And one of the things that's interesting when you read and study First Kings and First uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles is that you find that there was never a significant revival that took place in the Northern Kingdom. You read it. There was never a time when the people uh, universally turned to God and repented of their wicked ways. Now it did happen in Judah. In the southern kingdom, it happened a few times there. Uh, but never a significant revival that took place in the northern kingdom. Yet it was to the northern kingdom specifically that Hosea ministered. And when God wanted to demonstrate his love to them, he, he spoke to Hosea and he said to Hosea, Okay, Hosea, you'll be me. And this is basically God is going to act this out in a drama uh, for the Israelites of the northern kingdom. And he says, Hosea, you'll be me, and Gomer, whom you're going to marry, is going to be the Israelites. And Gomer was a prostitute. And God specifically instructed him to go and marry her. And she, true to her nature, repeatedly, time and again, left Hosea and went out to prostitute herself. And repeatedly, God led him to take her back to himself. And it got to the point where she had gone so far that Hosea found her in a slave market. In order to take her back, had to buy her back from the slave market. You see, God was still reaching out to his people in love and he used this story to demonstrate to them his faithful love that no matter how far they went, no matter how many times they rejected him, that he was still reaching out to them in steadfast love. We also see it in some of the kings of the northern tribes of the northern kingdom. We see it in King Ahab that the Bible tells us was such a wicked man, and, and uh, he married Jezebel, and, and how they uh, led the people into idolatry. But did you know that there was a time that Ahab humbled himself greatly before God, the Bible says. It's 1 Kings chapter 21. And God forgave him. The story that amazes me the most is the story of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. We read about in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And Manasseh was a king who was so wicked. The Bible tells us that he enticed the people of Israel to greater depths of sin than they'd ever gone before. And Manasseh even sacrificed his own sons to the false gods. 
And so God allowed judgment to come. And it was because of Manasseh and some of the other kings that God said he promised judgment on the Israelites. And he said to them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge you so severely that it's going to be like a, a person wiping a dish, turning it upside down and wiping it clean. My, the judgment is going to be so thorough and so complete. And God allowed that to happen. And Manasseh was taken into captivity and his eyes were put out. But we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 again that Manasseh, another one who humbled himself and repented and God forgave and restored him. People, when we hear the stories and we read those stories, you may think, I don't know, you may think about your loved ones, those people who don't yet know Jesus that you pray for. You may at times have thought about your own life and your own self and have thought, I've gone too far, I've done too much, and God can't forgive me, he can't uh, receive me back to himself. Friends, there's nobody that's too far gone. Whenever you remember, whenever you think that, look back to the Old Testament and think about old King Ahab and King Manasseh and see how far and how wicked they went. And yet when they humbled themselves and repented, God received them back to himself. He is a God abounding in steadfast love. He's also a God of overwhelming generosity. A God of overwhelming generosity. Many of Jesus' teachings on prayer, encourage us to pray persistently. Persistently. I think of the story of the unjust judge. And you remember that story where Jesus said, hear what the unjust judge saith. I think that's one of the most interesting things because who cares what an unjust judge has to say, right? Nobody wants to hear what an unjust judge has to say. But yet Jesus said, hear what he says. This is a woman, it's a story about a woman who she didn't have any money to, to buy or, or to bribe the judge. She didn't have any resources. She didn't have any land, but she had an adversary. And so she did the only thing that she knew she could do. She simply made a pest out of herself until that judge said, this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to give her what she's asking for. That's my modern day translation of that story that's essentially what he said she did the only thing she knew to do she camped out in by his front door she camped out outside of his office and everywhere that she could she interacted with this man and pleaded with him to intercede for uh, her with her adversary and finally he said this woman is wearying me I'm going to give her though I have though I have no regard for man nor God I'm going to give her what she asked for and God says, how much more will God be ready to intervene on behalf of those who pray to him? You see, God is, is not saying that God is like an unjust judge. It's a contrast. God is ready and willing to hear our prayers. How much more? We read about it also. I'm not going to take the time to... Uh, to go specifically to these verses, but we read also in the Gospel of Luke how Jesus is talking about giving the Holy Spirit. And he says to us, you being evil, if you know how to give good gifts, good things to your kids when they come. And he says, which of you, when they come asking for bread, will you give him a stone? Which one of you, if he comes asking for fish, will you give him a serpent? 
So we're not, we're, we're evil, sinful people, and most of us are not going to be that cruel or unkind to our own kids. Jesus says, if you then being evil know how to give good things to your children when they ask, how much more will your heavenly Father do good things for those who ask of him? Friends, we serve a God of unlimited creative potential. We serve a God abounding in steadfast love and mercy and a God of overwhelming generosity. Then why, pastor, do we sometimes have to pray for a long time before God does anything? I, I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know this, it's not because God is a reluctant giver. It's not because he's unkind. I think sometimes there are issues in our own lives that we have to work through and that God has to work through within us before he can bring us to the point where he is ready and able to pour out his blessing and his spirit upon us. I've told you this story before, but I'm going to close with this. Off the west coast of Scotland is a small group of islands called the Hebrides. Between 1949 and 1952, a widespread revival uh, swept through these islands in answer to the prayers of God's people. Instrumental in this revival was the evangelist Duncan Campbell. He came to the Isle of Lewis to conduct a two-week evangelistic campaign and ended staying two years. The following accounts are testimonies of the power of intercessory prayer. During this mighty move of God, these two ladies, Peggy and Christine Smith, they lived in a small cottage by the roadside in the village of Barvis, and they were 84 and 82 years old. Peggy was blind, and her sister almost bent double with arthritis. Unable to attend public worship, their humble cottage became a sanctuary where they met with God. And to them came the promise from Scripture, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. One night, Peggy had a revelation. You see, they had pleaded with God, prayed faithfully for, I guess, a number of years. For God to send revival. One night Peggy had a revelation that revival was coming and the church of her fathers would be crowded again with young people. She called for the local minister, Reverend James Murray McKay, and told him what God had shown her and asked him to call his elders and deacons together for special times of waiting upon God and praying. On the other side of the village was a group of seven young men who knew nothing about the Smith sisters, and the Smith sisters knew nothing about these seven young men. But God had been dealing and working with them, and these seven young men began seeking and praying for revival. Three nights a week they met in a barn to pray. One night as they waited upon God, one of those young men rose and read part of the 24th Psalm that says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Turning to the others, this young man said, Brethren, it seems to me just so much humbug or foolishness to be waiting and praying as we are on God if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. 
Then lifting his hands toward heaven, he cried, Oh God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And he got no further than that and fell prostrate on the floor. And an awareness of God began to fill that space, that barn where they were meeting to pray. You see, these people were praying during a time when it was said that the churches were dead and they were in a spiritual winter. There was a form of godliness, but no power and no reality. And legalism was so extreme that very few young people were interested in spiritual matters. On Duncan Campbell's first night at the church in Barvis, 300 people were gathered when he arrived to preach. After preaching that evening, nothing significant happened. But there was an awareness of God's presence in the building. But nothing extraordinary beyond that. The service was closed at about 10.45 in the evening. With everyone having left the church and Duncan Campbell and a young deacon being the only ones left, that young man, knowing that God was going to do something much more that night, uh, in the middle of the aisle said to Duncan Campbell, nothing has broken out tonight, but God is hovering over us. He is hovering and he will break through any moment. And that young man then began, uh, he lifted his hand and started to pray, God, you made a promise to pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground and you're not yet doing it. He then intensely began interceding in prayer for a considerable period of time. At around 11 p.m., the back door of the church opened and a man entered saying, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful is happening. We were praying that God would pour water on the thirsty ground, and He is doing it. And as they left the building, they witnessed hundreds of people coming from everywhere towards the church. No one had invited them, but they had been drawn sovereignly by God at that late hour of the evening. And by 12 midnight, the church was crowded out, packed with people. On the same evening, there were about a hundred young people at a dance in the county hall. During their dance, God's presence suddenly fell upon them. And the music stopped. And the young people, being overcome by an, a, a, a conviction of sin, fled the hall, the dance hall, as if they were fleeing from a plague and began to make their way to the church. In addition to these hundred young people, there were hundreds more who had already been in bed, but simultaneously, without any explanation, got out of bed and dressed themselves and went running to the church. Just seemingly at random, a hunger and a thirst for God overwhelmed the people in the area. In the church, uh, uh, the crowds began to gather and they began singing and worshiping. The church that would seat over 800 was packed out. People in the aisles and in the pews were on their knees crying out for God to have mercy. And that meeting continued until 4 in the morning. There were no altar calls, no appeals to accept Christ. It was just a powerful moving of God. I could go on. There's a lot more to the story. 4 a.m. as Duncan Campbell was leaving the church to go to his quarters, he began to realize that there were people all along the roadway in, in the ditches beside the road that, that conviction had fallen upon them and they couldn't go any further and they were there just beside the road seeking and praying and trying to find the mercy and the salvation of God. 
A large group of people had gathered at the police station, about 300 people seeking God. I could go on, but I'll stop. Uh, I'll just give you a few of the results of that revival that took place. People would travel from the Hebrides to different places around the country and even around the world to tell about what God had done there. And everywhere they went, God's spirit would fall in a powerful way and conviction of sin would come upon the people. The hunger for the word of God was intense. The bars and saloons were emptied out. Many ministers and missionaries received their calling during that time. There was a fear to count the number of people that were saved because the ministers that were active in that revival did not want to uh, fall into David's sin of pride. But some have estimated that there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people who were saved from that revival. Old debts that had long been outstanding were repaid. Several police courts became idle, Maurice, because there were no cases to try. Maurice works for the courts. And according to Duncan Campbell, backsliding was practically unheard of amongst those who got right with God during that time of revival. And I'm not sure if it's the same revival or if it was another, but I read that uh, the, the, uh, the mules that carried the packs and pulled the wagons uh, for, for the miners would no longer do their work because the, uh, the men who were in charge of them stopped swearing. And the mules did not understand the commands when the men didn't swear. People, this is not ancient history. This took place during many of your lifetimes, this happened. Late, late 1940s, early 1950s. God wants to revive His people. It's the kind of God He is. And I believe we've seen God working in our lifetime. I told someone not too long ago, I... I, along with others, had gotten to the point of fearing that I would never see a powerful move of God in my day. Now, while I haven't seen it in person, I'm glad to say that I've seen it in my day. And I believe God is still at work. I believe God wants to work amongst us, friends. Our God is a God of unlimited creative potential. He is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And He is a God of overwhelming and abundant generosity. Let's stand together, please.